0: Wow, that is pretty encouraging to hear all of that. And I'm very glad uh, to be here with you all. Uh, we're going to continue our reset series and we're going to look at reset restoration tonight. Uh, what does it mean to allow the gospel, the unconditional love of God, the work of God in Christ to restore and to renew us? Um, If you've missed past Reset Talks, uh, those are online. But the hope for this is that they really catalyze uh, your connection with Christ and with one another as they anchor your uh, Reset groups together. As we gather, uh, we also want to grow together. So. Let's just jump right in. I want to show you a picture. And this picture is a Monet painting. It's up there. Uh, And it was painted originally in 1874. You look at that picture and I just, yep, that happened, right? That is a near priceless painting. Monet spent a couple of years of his career painting scenes from a boat, right? And so this is one of his classic scenes he painted. Uh, It was in a... Museum in Paris. And in 2012, someone walked up to the painting, they looked at the painting, and they punched it. (laughs) Because that happens all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, literally a million dollar, multi million dollar painting, someone just punched it. The person who punched the painting ended up going to prison for. Uh, five years, and you're, you might wonder. I, I get on tangents. I read, I started reading randomly about restored paintings. You might hear more or less of restored paintings later. Uh, but I'm fascinated because there was actually a team of people that took that painting. It was over a foot in diameter, the hole in the canvas, uh, over 130 years old, right? Almost 150 years old. And it was someone's job, a team of people's job, to restore that painting. And if you went to uh, the name of the museum in Paris, if you went there uh, to look at this painting, you would not even tell today that this happened. Now, if I'm restoring a painting like this, I'll probably get an iron out and would try to like iron it flat and maybe stitch it together and ruin everything. But somebody made this almost perfectly new. It's now behind glass. So if you wanted to paint it, uh, punch it when you went there, it wouldn't work. It's actually protected now. Um, It's interesting how that is but this painting cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to restore. As we look at the story in John 4 tonight, I want you to have that image in mind because the reality is this painting is worth millions. They spent hundreds of thousands restoring it. But Christ sees you as worth more. Worth more to restore. And he paid the ultimate price so that we could find restoration in him. Now our temptation when we are looking for restoration is to look at the loves of our world. But tonight's passage is going to compel us to trust God's love for you where we can find true restoration. If you can open your Bibles or your phones or or whatever to John chapter 4, we're just going to have another painting up there. If you could just put the other painting up there. It's a Rembrandt painting of this scene. Um, And I I love that painting for a lot of reasons. I love Rembrandt uh, primarily. Um, That one has never been restored. That's, That's what it originally looks like. But here's the reality. I speak regularly. When I say regularly, I mean multiple times a week to people who need a reset for restoration. People who have been punched in the face or in life by different addictions, by poor sexual choices, by poor and unwise life decisions, people that have been ruined and long for restoration from violations that have been perpetrated against them or that they have perpetrated against others. And there's a deep need in everyone's life to experience amending, experience to experience a healing, a wholeness, and a restoration. And today's passage invites you into that. So let's read verses one to ten. It's a really long chapter. I want to encourage you to read it later, but we're gonna look at these first ten verses, beginning at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, it was only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. I don't think you heard that. Verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, uh, a, Sam- uh, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now in a time of social isolation, where we have been uh, required uh, to move to social distancing away from one another into shelter and stay procedures literally for weeks and weeks and months previously, uh, it, it, we can identify with, with what it means to be in isolation. If you've been in isolation by yourself without a roommate, then you know, or maybe with roommates that you, you wish you weren't isolated with, right? Um, then, then maybe you know some of the pain that comes from isolation. All the studies that are out there are showing that, that uh, the social isolation of our culture is leading to increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety, and just exponential rates of loneliness, depression. Uh, these are things that come with isolation. In this woman that we read about, uh, she is isolated at the well, but she's not there because of some sort of government mandate to try to, to, to flatten the curve of a pandemic. She's there because of her life. She is uh, part of a a village, and her her lifestyle has been so irreputable that she goes to the well in the middle of the day by herself, totally isolated. Now, we see that Jesus, when he talks to her, uh, he later asked her, he says to her, uh, go get your husband. (laughs) And she says, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know you don't. But the fact is, you've had five husbands. And the guy you're living with now, he's not your husband. And so Jesus is talking to this woman who is in the middle of the day, by herself away from the village, isolated, doing a chore that is normally done in community with other women and either in the cool of the day, in the morning or the evening. She was a woman that had made some bad decisions. She was isolated and alone Because of her shame. She was isolated and alone from relationship. While there was a man that wanted to live with her, there weren't many women that wanted to hang with her. Have you ever been there in life? Made decisions uh, that brought you so much shame that it led to a sense of isolation? Maybe that was personally imposed. You just didn't feel worthy to hang out with anybody. Or maybe it was uh, socially imposed. Regardless this woman was shame, shamefully set apart. Now, when we practice our worst ways in our lives, there are different consequences and different casualties. Some of those casualties are public. All of those casualties are personal. You experience the shame of our sin, the shame of our struggle, and the shame of our rebellion against God's design. Everybody carries it. You're not alone in that. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't let her stay alone at the well. Jesus has this relentless heart to restore people and places that are broken, that have been punched in the face by sin or different other vandalisms of God's design. And what we saw in verse 4 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Now, I have thousands of them, but this is definitely one of them. It said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It's very interesting. He's God, fully God and fully man. He doesn't have to do anything. But he, he could have floated over Samaria. He didn't need it. There's a path he could have gone around Samaria. He could have teleported, gone through some portal. I don't know. But the passage says that he had this necessity to pass through Samaria. And the reason is, it's because Jesus is burdened to meet us in our brokenness. To go to those places where we're isolated and ripped apart, and to bring restoration, renewal, and hope. To bring healing with his love. He has a divine desire. Not just to meet us in our felt needs, but he wants to meet you in your real needs. It's what he says to the woman. He gets to her, and he says, give me a drink, right? Give me a drink. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was human. He had been traveling. But she says, "Uh, how am I supposed to get a drink, right? How are you supposed to get a drink? You don't even have a, 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 a bucket. And he ends up flipping the conversation in verse 10. And he says, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, then you would ask for living water. And the conversation goes on, and she begins to, to, to speak on a very intimate and personal level to Jesus at his initiative, asking about relationships, asking about lifestyle. And she distracts the conversation. Oh, I, I think you're a prophet. You know, They teach that one day uh, that, that the, uh, we're going to worship on this mountain. She goes to religion, and he moves right off of that, right back onto her. And then she goes to this whole cosmic, like, I'm just going to get it off of me completely. I'm going to get the whole focus off of me, and we're going to focus on something bigger. I hear the Messiah is coming. And I want to go back to the passage, and I I want to read verses 24 to 26. Jesus says this to her. uh, God is a spirit, and he is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. She's refusing to talk about herself. She's keeping it very uh, cosmic. And Jesus says in verse 26 it says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He had this divine desire to reveal himself to her. It's very interesting. Jesus is relentless and pursuing people so that they see him for who he really is. When you're in your reset groups, you're going to talk about the context of this passage. One of those aspects of the context is John 3. Jesus, again, goes to someone else, completely opposite situation, scenario, and person. He goes to a a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a man at night. He goes to see the woman during the day. He speaks to Nicodemus, uh, who was a religious leader, This woman was a Samaritan, a religious outcast, going all the way back to the 586 BC, hundreds and hundreds of years, her people had been religiously unclean. Jesus uh, speaks to Nicodemus and talks about what it means to be born again, moving beyond his religious obstacles to understanding who Jesus really was. And this woman, he doesn't talk about being born again, he talks about meeting her and refreshing her in her deepest need. And when he reveals himself as Messiah, I who speak to you am he. I am he. Ego I mean in Greek. He's referring back to a reference to Exodus 3 when God first revealed himself to Moses. I am that I am. He is making this divine claim. Can you imagine that? Your most broken of broken moments, your most isolated place. Just take yourself to your, your habitual sin. Take yourself to that place in your mind where you would never want anybody in this room to know that you've even fought it or done it. And imagine Jesus coming up to you and revealing himself. That's powerful. That's love. And Jesus does this all through the Gospel of John. There's actually seven I am statements in the Gospel of John that hold the whole book together. Formally, this isn't actually one of them, but it's a springboard that points to other ones. And it's different ways that Jesus reveals himself. I just want to read a few of them. If you keep reading the Gospel of John in John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Are you hungry for something more? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You get to John chapter 8. Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Do you feel like you're walking in darkness? And you want to, you want to not only a hand up, but a hand to pull you out of that darkness? Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals himself in that way. You feel lost? Jesus says I am the doorway of the sheep in John 10 and again in John 10 for everyone who feels like they're looking for direction in life you have more questions than answers you don't know what life is going to look like this semester you wonder what it's going to look like in the next few months or few years of your life where you're going to live geographically who are you, who are going to primary relationships be what vocationally is your life going to look like uh, what is your uh, what is your all the questions that you have Jesus says I am a shepherd I've gone before you. He reveals himself intimately. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Are you struggling with death? There isn't a week that goes by right now that I'm not hearing about someone else who died. Some of natural causes, some of tragic causes. Very tragic. Suicides are very high in our society right now. And if anything, this passage teaches us that everybody is worth being restored, that that option is foolish. There's always hope. And Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, I'm the truth, I am the life. I talked to a guy today uh, who was clearly not a born Hindu, but he was wearing a bunch of Hindu garb and he came up and talked to me. And I asked him, I said, are you... Hindu by birth or by choice I'm Hindu by choice and he said oh I said great and we had this long conversation well not long we had a a good conversation about what he's really looking for right he's looking for truth he's looking for life and of course I lead that conversation to Jesus' revelation Jesus is the way the truth and life he's everything you're looking for No matter what religious path you think you're pursuing, there's only one way to the Father. Only one way to really be satisfied. And and we ended up saying we'll talk more later, but I said to him, I hope you find what you're looking for, man. (laughs) Because you're clearly not satisfied. Like all of us. If you're looking for purpose in life, Jesus says in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. You see, Jesus is passionate about revealing not only who God is to you, but who he's created you to be through that. And in his love, when you trust his love, when you trust his life and his uh, restoration for you, then you discover everything he's created you to be. You're restored. It's interesting how the woman, when you read this passage later in preparation for your groups, she actually resisted being reset by his restoration. She had all kinds of excuses. She distanced herself religiously. She distanced herself culturally. She distanced herself uh, theologically. (laughs) I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus goes through each obstacle, through each one, because he was passionately pursuing her heart. And Jesus wants you in the same way to see who he really is, his love for you. I don't know why it is that we resist restoration and renewal, but we do. One of my favorite stories of that uh, is about actually a homeless guy. Um, I don't know who the homeless guy is, but I know the officer that this happened to. And Jacob, man, great testimony. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, and uh, Sav, yours was great too. But this one, what I'm going to say is about our outreach to the homeless and the poor in the city. And several of you all helped with our food drive, uh, raising cans and and serving this weekend. Thanks for doing that. We had a great number of volunteers, but we served over four thousand people, and we gave out over seventy-five thousand pounds of food. What? That's a lot. That's a lot of people coming together to provide needs for individuals and families, over a thousand different families. So thank you for doing that. But we really prioritize trying to love our neighbors, and we should do that. Uh, That's what we're called to do. But there's this one story of of a homeless guy who actually ran from help. And this certain police officer uh, started a unit that was designed to give help and hope to homeless folks. In fact, they call themselves the Hope Team. They're a phenomenal group. And when they first started, they thought, "Man, everybody's going to want hope. everybody's going to want hope and help." And and they saw this homeless guy that had been struggling, uh, and they and they started walking towards him, and the guy started walking away, and they were like, "No." We, we want to help you. We've got connections for you. We want, to, we want to get you to a place that's off the streets where you can find uh, the help you need to, to turn your life around. And the more the officer started walking towards him, the faster the homeless guy started running away. And this picture, as Officer Scott tells the story, is that the homeless guy is running across the park and the officer is running yelling, I'm here to help you! I want to help you! And this homeless guy is just taking off. And Officer Scott says that was the day that he realized that he needed to execute the hope team uh in plain clothes and so they don't dress as police officers anymore right (laughs) but what is it that we resist authority that wants to help us we resist authority because we don't want to be exposed we don't want to be fully seen we don't want to be brought up on charges right surely this is an authority that wants to condemn us But that's not what Jesus says. In John chapter three, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus was condemned for us, and we are more ruined than any painting that has been punched. We're devastated by our sin, and the price that needs to be paid for our restoration was paid for Christ on the cross who went and took our condemnation so that we can find redemption and restoration in the work of jesus and here's what's remarkable he is an authority not like an officer who if they find something that you've done illegally is going to be forced to prosecute you but he's an authority that fully sees you and he fully loves you do you believe that That in your worst moments when you're practicing your worst ways that the true authority of all of heaven and all of earth will walk up to you and not condemn you but show you love? It's an unbelievable reality to be fully seen and fully loved. Now I've got a quote. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to listen to it. It comes from a book uh, called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's something that we all long for and I don't think that the fact that this is a book on marriage loses application for all of you all. Listen to this. Tim Keller writes this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. You ever been there? People love you but they don't really know you and you, and you worry if they really knew you they wouldn't love you. Then he says, to be known and not loved, that's our greatest fear, isn't it? That if somebody actually gets to know you, they're just going to reject you. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel is that you are more loved, more seen than you even can comprehend and understand. You cannot hide anything from God. But coupled with that, you're actually more sinful and more rebellious than you can even acknowledge. I say, you've heard me say it before. We're conscious of probably 4 to 5% of our sin. God sees all the other 95%. 100% of your sin and he still loves you. Because he died on the cross to pay for your sins. And this kind of love when we know we have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, nothing to prove, it restores us. It resets us. It renews us. And this is what it does for this woman. It's remarkable. And this is our application. You're going to make observations on the text. You're going to make interpretation using uh, different, uh, different tools that we're going to give you. But the application for this woman is amazing. And I think you're going to find some overlap. First, her position is restored in society. She doesn't run to isolation and go do her thing on her own. She runs back to her village. She goes back to community. And she goes with confidence you want confidence with people? She has confidence because she has a security in God's love. Secondly, presence. She has a secure position as a beloved child that goes back to community. She has presence. She moves from isolation back in to fellowship with people. And she does so with a purpose. And this is where you can, you can come on up, Matt, and start playing. We're going to uh, finish here. But this purpose in verse 29 um, or 49, excuse me, is what she says. Uh, oh, John 4. Sorry, I was looking, I was like, whoa, it's verse 29. This is so remarkable to me. We'll start at 28. So the woman left her water jar. She went, so she dropped her old purpose, went away into the town, and she said to the people, come and see, come and see a man who has told me all that I ever did can this be the Messiah? Verse 30, and they went out of town and they all came to him. Isn't that amazing? Her, the sixth man in his life, her life, right? The sixth man fully sees her, doesn't reject her, fully loves her. And you know what her testimony is? <laughs> this guy's seen everything. He's fully seen me. Come meet him. I mean, do you want to invite somebody? Like, Are you ever going to say that to somebody? this guy has seen everything I've ever done. Come meet him. That's a guy that I want to put on an island and I don't ever want you to meet, right? (laughs) But her testimony, the love of Jesus restores her to such an extent. It restores her position, beloved child. It it, it restores her, her presence, her practical life. She's in community and it restores her purpose. Overflowing with love. You've got to get to know this guy. You've got to come meet him. The Savior, when we meet him, when we really meet him, we've got to savor that love personally. And you're going to be compelled to share that love with others. And so as we wrap up, we're going to go into a song, but I want, I really want to challenge you. I want to challenge you and ask you has the love of Jesus really restored you on that heart level? Are you so secure? that you have nothing to hide? Are you so secure that you can't help but to overflow and share like Sav and Jacob did tonight? I mean, phenomenal. God wants to use you for that purpose, but he wants to restore you first. Now this song, you're going to hear Matt sing. You you can play with it, but I want you to just focus on the words. It's good stuff. I'm going to pray for us and, uh, and then we'll stand and sing. Let's pray. Father, I just confess that I have a hard time believing that you love me on this level. I have a hard time believing that I'm fully seen in my worst ways, fully seen in in the areas that I try to hide, fully seen in the thoughts that I have, and I'm fully loved by you. Lord, I thank you for this truth. I thank you that you have this burden, this divine necessity to reveal yourself to us and to restore us on this level. I pray for people in this room that need to experience that level of restoration. Lord, would you give them boldness to trust you? Lord, those who have been punched in the artwork of your divine design of their life has a huge hole in it. Lord, would you give them light? Would you give them resurrection? Would you give them satisfaction? Would you give them freedom? Would you give them fruitfulness? All of what you reveal yourself to be. For you alone are the Messiah. Lord, I pray that we'd be a community that relentlessly shows and shares this love with others. And as we take these words and go deeper into our reset groups, I pray they wouldn't just inspire us, but they'd truly transform us. Lord, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.